Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Mick DSP, professional audio plugins. For over 15 years, Mick DSP has continued producing industry-acclaimed and award-winning software titles. The podcast is also brought to you by Slate Digital, all the pro plugins, one low monthly price, and now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and Al Levy. Hey guys, welcome to the Joey Sturgis Forum Podcast. I'm Joey Sturgis, and with me, as always, is Jill Wanasek and Al Levy. And today we have a special guest, Jamie King, the man. The legend. Jamie King is the man, the legend. <laughs> the redneck. <laughs> Thanks for being with us, man. I've been following your work for well over 10 years at this point, I think. <laughs> for real, I think that I heard uh, that early Between the Barry and Me stuff maybe 2005 or something. Gotcha. Yeah, so uh, I'm stoked to have you on here. I, I've, I've been a fan for ages. And I just want to say that I, I love the most recent Between the Buried and Me, the way it sounds so natural and big and just sounds like a real band yet modern. Yeah, it has a lot to do with Jens Bogren also. So <laughs> he's actually the guy who mixed it. So Yeah, but you had to record it. He's a great mixer too. We're actually having him coming on. Awesome, awesome. I love it. We'll have, definitely have to check that out. Well, I'm definitely honored yeah. to honored for you guys to have me on. I mean, it's uh, like I said, I look up to and respect and reference all your works uh, oftentimes to try to get tones for the stuff that I do. So That's awesome. <laughs> and I, I just want to say that, uh, you know, Congrats on snagging one of the coolest bands to to record, I uh, think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got lucky on that one. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that brings up a question that a lot of our listeners bring up. I'm going to just phrase it my own way. I've noticed that a lot of producers who work with bigger bands tend to have found that one band that got big and that helped spawn their career, not... Not that they wouldn't have had a recording career anyways, but usually there tends to be that one band. Did, how did you end up meeting them? Like, how did you cultivate that relationship? What kept it going? How did you keep them coming back to you? You know, I was doing live sound, I guess, in uh, the late 90s or whatever, early 2000s. And uh, I did sound for Prayer for Cleansing, which was uh, Tommy and Paul's band uh, before Between the Barry and Me. And... Uh, they had heard my band, my old band, Swift, uh, or my recordings of that band, which is the band I did my first multi-track recordings. And at the time, it was like the first local stuff that was even kind of listenable. Like the audio engineers around this area were just terrible <laughs> uh, <laughs> or just unaffor- you know, just not affordable at all. So I think that was uh, that was the key thing. I mean, it was just I think the main aspect is I was you know young and into the style of music they were doing and uh, understood the tones that they were going for. You know, back in the day, a lot of the local engineers they they were just older guys who could afford the expensive equipment back in the day, and they just didn't understand metal or younger generations of music. You know, we had Kurt Ballou on here a couple months ago, and he basically said the same exact thing that you just said that the way that he got his career going was by filling that niche because the guys with nice studios in his area didn't understand the style at all so either your options were go to a horrible horrible place or go to one of these super nice places and both were going to get you a bad result so he just figured he was going to 
fill that niche. Well, I'll echo that too, because that's how I got started. There was no, I mean, if you wanted to pay like 70 bucks an hour, you would get what would be the worst local band recording you've ever heard in the town that I'm from. Exactly. And I was the only guy that could do metal. So if I was charging like 25, 30 bucks an hour at the time, you kept me booked because no one could really do that kind of music. And if they could, they were so outrageously priced that it just wasn't affordable for any bands. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, that's why Between the Barrier Me chose to record with me. I think I was working out of my parents' basement doing live recordings with an ADAT, you know, uh, some of the some <laughs> of the some of the cheapest stuff that you could get at the time, you know, it's all I could afford and, you know, but I could keep my my rates were, you know, in, you know, I was like, I think I started at 10 bucks an hour and then maybe we were like 15 bucks an hour, you know, and uh, you know, it's all live recording, so there was no production going into it. It was just like bands would come in, record for two or three days, and the whole total bill was like you know three to five hundred bucks. You know, so obviously, you know, obvious demo quality type stuff. But at the time, you know, kind of you know more raw type productions were kind of in vogue with the new metal movements and the you know the dirty metal stuff that was going on. That was kind of the sound at the time. So I kind of had to. Uh, you know, step up my game as the uh, demand for more produced products came into vogue or whatever. That brings up the question then, if that's how you were starting and that's how you met them by being the guy in town that could fulfill their needs, I guess, how did you manage to keep that relationship going though? Because, I mean, we all know that lots of times a band will work with one guy that's affordable and local, but then once the record label gets into the picture they get moved over to the producer of choice from the label but you managed to keep the relationship going yeah i think there's a, there's a number of factors uh, i think you know with between the bear and me you know obviously you know we're on the same page musically you know we have a lot of the same background in terms of like what we listen to coming up and between the bear and me are, are really into you know surrounding themselves with positive people you know people who they enjoy spending time with you know it's a it's about the life experience you know a large part for them and you know you know there's the element that I'm close by you know uh, Blake the drummer lives up the road Dusty doesn't live too far you know Tommy Paul used to only live like an hour and a half from here so there's that element you know the first record with Victory Records or whatever they did go up to Boston to record ah so it did happen I, you know, I did the first live style. Record Record, which was that record came out originally with Life Force Records in Germany, and uh, Victory bought that contract out. Obviously, they wanted someone who could do more of a produced product, so they sent them to Boston to record. And uh, BT Bam basically cited that as a nightmare experience for them because the guy they were working with, even though he's a super talented engineer, he just didn't understand the music. And you know, we tried to talk them into like keeping bad takes and didn't understand the tones and uh, basically wouldn't do anything they asked him to do. He just did his own thing and, and they just didn't like that. They knew I was, you know, I'm the type of guy who will try to do it, what you know, what they want to do. I think that's a great point, Jamie, because I, I've got a very strong opinion on this because I used to develop a lot of bands and then, you know, earlier in my career, a lot of them would get picked and they would go work with some expensive guy and they would always come back to me for their next record and be like, yeah, we hated it. When you develop a friendship and a bond and like a certain level of trust as well as like a creative balance with that band where like you you just you can complete each other's musical sentences you know what i mean like you just have a chemistry with them exactly that's built over a lot of work together you you just know each other as people you know what to predict you know what to expect and that's not something that you can usually get with a band 
when you're doing one record with them for the first time. So if you've done a bunch of recordings over a period of years with a band, then all of a sudden they get signed and they go to some new producer, they're going to be totally out of their element and comfort zone and they may not get the best result. So I think it's always cool when a band takes a producer with them. Um, if they go up the ladder to like a major label or, you know, a large indie or something like that. And they fight for the team that helped get them there because those are the people that, you know, they created some sort of magic that gathered the investors in the first place in the project. And that, it's just one of those things that drives me nuts because you can't replace that magic chemistry that exists with a band. It just is not something that happens right away on day one. It takes time. Yeah, another thing that happens to me is I'll work with a band. You know, the album comes out and the fans sort of have whatever their expectation is. And some people will say, Joey ruined this or he changed the band. It's like, no, the band actually came to me and was like, hey, can we be more like this other band that you did? And I'm like, well, if that's what you need and that's what you want, I guess you're paying me, so I have to kind of do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, with me, the client's the boss, you know. Like, And and the reason, you know, I I take that approach is, you know, I get into recording for my own band, you know, because like we were just talking about just a few seconds ago that I got into recording just because there was no one in the area that was willing or able to give me the tones and things that I wanted. So, you know, even though, you know, there were studios I was going to and paying 90 bucks an hour and they just, these guys just would not, you know, give me the punchy kick drum I wanted or, you know, the metal guitars that I wanted at the time because alternative was huge, you know, or rap rock or whatever. You know, that was key for Between the Bear to me. They had a specific, very, you know, specific vision and they're really big on sound and the way they sound. And uh, and I think that's why they come to me because they keep going to people and, and those people tend to like try to steer them in other directions and change their material. And, and you know, for a lot of bands, I think that's uh that's needed in a positive thing. They need that direction and they need input uh, and they actually want it. But for BT BAM, you know, um, basically they just want a facilitator, someone to maybe add to what they're doing, but not necessarily change it, you know? So, and I think uh, they know I'm that dude and uh, we hang out and have fun together and I'm local. And uh, like I said, in a lot of ways, I just feel like I got lucky that they actually like me. (laughs) I've I've noticed that there's, there's some modern metal producers that are really, really good, but they kind of do the same thing every time no matter what the record is so if the band is terrible they do the same thing and if the band is great they do the same thing which i think is a mistake i mean clearly if the band is terrible and they're going to that producer the the producer is doing the right thing by putting them through the the surgical reconstruction process but if you have a band of great musicians with a very defined musical vision and personality and character may as well do what you can to bring out what they want. They don't need you to fix them. They just need you to, like you said, facilitate them. So here's a question. You said that you started with live recording and things started to pick up a little and you realized that you needed to up your game some, but there weren't many resources back then like there are now, I think. Like, how did you go about getting better? Yeah, it, it was tough at that time. You know, there's, you know, there wasn't, YouTube and, and, you know, other resources of that nature, you know, that, you know, there were no local engineers I could shadow or anything. Uh, most of the, what I've learned and most of the, uh, I guess you could, if you call them skills or whatever I've developed are just from trial and error, you know, just like reading. 
Amen, brother. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I just had no choice, unfortunately. I don't recommend it because it takes forever. You know, it's taken me 10 years to get where I am now, and I'm still not where I want to be. But can I, If I can jump in, there's one major thing about being self-taught that I think is really cool is you develop a very unique sound that way much quicker than you would if you were to shadow somebody and kind of quasi-steal all their tricks, you know? Also, a, a unique understanding. Like, it's it's like your labor, you know, you, you connect with it on a super deep level because you didn't, someone didn't tell you how to do it. You didn't read a book that told you how to do it. You've literally figured it out on your own. And I think that's super uh, strong. Yeah, I gotta say, though, I feel like even if you do have the good fortune of coming up under somebody or having those things, those positive influences in your production growth, you still got to put in the work either way. Yeah. I mean, just because someone says cut some nasty frequencies on guitars doesn't mean that you're going to automatically know when there's too many of them or too little of them on a guitar tone. Like these are things that you need to figure out for yourself anyways, but it does help. I think to have someone tell you that this is something you need to be listening for. Creative Live or YouTube existed 10 years ago. I would have been so happy. Oh, absolutely. Oh my God. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I, you know, having gone through it, you know, having, you know, been doing this for, for a living for 15 years, like there's a lot of bad habits and things that I developed using the wrong gear for the wrong sounds and things of that nature that, you know, if I knew then what I knew now, I think I would be further along now. So, you know, anybody listening out there, I recommend them check out, you know, the creative live stuff or, you know, try to shadow someone or get in for an education session with the people who are in the know and at least get, you know, the solid foundation, you know, for the production style and the sounds that you're going for and then try to develop your own sound from there. You know, it's a. Yeah, I think you do develop your own kind of sound through self-teaching and learning, but you can also develop a lot of time-consuming, you know, bad habits and things like that. I, I really personally, like, you know, I'm still unlearning because, you know, I started with, you know, a mixing board and a rack of gear and a, and a, and a couple of ADATs. And, uh, you know, there was a kind of a different approach and uh, I had to change the, you know, I, I started in with Pro Tools early, but it's more of an integration type of approach of just editing and still mixing on the board and things of that nature. And, uh, I mean, there's so many more options in the digital realm now. And if you don't mind sharing, what are some of the things that I guess you've had to unlearn, but at the same time, what are some of the things that you've done wrong, technically wrong, but that actually are pretty cool? Like I'm sure there's some happy accidents. I record all my sessions in one session, Pro Tools. I've learned how to you know streamline things so that that works for most of the stuff that I do. I feel like that's maximum efficient. Hey, I want to say, uh, man, that's really cool to do, wanted to do it. I think I tried it a couple times to do a whole session in, in one one project. I never figured out how to actually get it manageable, at least in, in Cubase. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, at least for Pro Tools, what are some of the things you're doing to make it? Uh, a lot of what I do, you know, it's, it's, it's got a lot to do with just sharing a bunch of tracks and things, you know, just grouping things and, you know, like keys and things like that. Uh, you know, uh, you know, most of the people who do a lot of, uh, I guess, a lot of MIDI stuff, you know, soundscape production, things like that, a lot of those people will do it outside the session. And that's kind of what I do. I just, you know, I think I saw in Joey's uh, Creative Live class where he, like, does things in separate sessions and imports in and things of that nature. And that, that, that can help, you know, 
you know, keep the Pro Tools session from being crazy, you know, as far as like, uh, you know, Pro Tools is definitely, I don't think it's the best, I don't think it's the best thing for the MIDI stuff. Uh, you know, usually I do most of that stuff in a different session and then import any keys and MIDI stuff or so. I'm not running a bunch of MIDI stuff that or instruments and things like that. that will take up a lot of, uh, you know, CPU, but, uh, I see. So it's kind of like you have a, a additional layer by having this master Pro Tools session that everything ends up being piled into. Not necessarily the session that you work in and record on and edit in, but it's where you kind of toss in all the little pieces. At the yeah, end. all my basically it's like I have a session. It's just all the waves, and then any many MIDI information is generally speaking uh, uh, bounced. You know, worked in in another session and bounced in. You know, I don't do a lot of bands that have a lot of that stuff, and when I do, oftentimes they have. Uh, you know, they they just bounce out the stems themselves uh, of the keys or the you know the, the individual key tracks themselves, and I'll just import it right. and process the actual wave and stuff. So I think that helps. And uh, you know, I just started that by accident because you know on, with ADAT you just record till the tape is run out. You know, I didn't realize that you know, most people track separate songs on separate sessions. You know, I just started it from you know with Pro Tools. <laughs> I just just going into hey guys. Well, half this song ended up uh, getting cut off on this tape, so let's go. Grab another uh, tape and finish the other uh, half. Yeah, I, I have been there. <laughs> you know, I used to do it all in one session too. And then I went and I did a record with Joey where I had like produced and engineered and he had mixed and I walked in with my session and he's like, what the hell is this? Why didn't you drop these all into single sessions? And I'm like, oh yeah, that's kind of a cool way to do it. I never thought about that. <laughs> so he converted me over like 2008 yeah. and I've been doing it that way ever since. I've learned there's, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think there's any rules. I think just whatever works for you, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, and for a lot of the bands, I, I'm recording lately that I get a lot of clients that are, you know, big fans of Between the Bear and Me, of course. And, uh, you know, a lot of these people are trying to do concept records or records that flow song to song. And it really helps to have everything in one session just because the client knows exactly how the songs are going to flow and you can work with everything in context, you know, and it's, there's no guesswork. And plus, just little things like, uh, you know, I never have to close and open up the session. I can open up one session and leave it open all day and we can just keep recording, you know, I can go bounce from song to song and, there's no closing and opening things like that, copying over settings or any of that kind of stuff. It helps things be a little more consistent, easier, I guess. I was going to say, I think it's really awesome from like mixing and tracking where I always hated everything in one session is when you're editing drums and you've got um, 4,000 little cuts yeah. in Cubase. We do this thing called slip editing, which is, well, there is Beat Detective now, but it didn't happen until like Cubase 6 or something like that. Yeah. So it, everybody in Cubase would just cut and then slide the audio within the block. And, you know, you have 50,000 cuts on a screen and then you bounce everything down and it gets kind of slow on the CPU and can lag a lot. Or if you're doing a lot of like MIDI production and stuff like that, like you guys are talking about, that can really bog you down and be a pain in the butt when you've got 400 open VST instruments and you're still tweaking sounds. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's pros and cons to both. Hey guys, AL here. And I just want to take a moment to talk to you about this month on Nail the Mix. If you're already a subscriber, thank you so much. We appreciate the hell out of you. But if you're not and you want to seriously up your mixing game, then you might want to consider Nail the Mix this month. We have a guest mixer, Mr. Kane Cherko. And he will be mixing Face Everything and Rise by Papa Roach. And when you subscribe, you get the multi-tracks that he recorded and produced. Uh, you download them. You can enter a mix competition uh, with prizes by McDSP. You get an Emerald Pack version 6. That's like a 
$1,600 software package. Plus, um, the winner also gets one year of the Everything Bundle from Slate. So really, really good prize package for uh, our mixed competition winners. We've also got a second place package that rules. And uh, yeah, if you join Nail the Mix, you also get bonus access to our exclusive community, which is other audio uh, professionals and aspiring professionals just like you who just dork out on this stuff all day and night and love spreading knowledge. It's troll free. And so whether you noob or experienced, it's a great place to just come talk about the thing we all share, which is a love for audio. So once again, if, um, you haven't subscribed to nail the mix yet, this might be a great month to try. Um, you get to learn how Kane Jerko mixed the number one single Face Everything and Rise by Papa Roach. Just go to nailthemix.com slash Papa Roach. That's nailthemix.com slash Papa Roach. To both ways, you know, it's just whatever works for you. I think I've just developed some workarounds to deal with the CPU thing, like with, you know, doing drum quantizing. I'll just do a couple minutes at a time and consolidate the files and, uh, you know, get rid of the unused files as I go. And uh, that just keeps the yeah. machine from being bogged down. And I don't think any of that affects the sound at all. You know, it's just workflow stuff that uh, I personally. You know, I'm kind of glad I do it. You know, I feel like it works well for me and, uh, you know, just little things like that. But as far as things for sound, as far as mistakes and stuff, like, you know, I mess with the wrong mics on guitar tones and, uh, you know, on guitar amps and uh, on drums and things and, uh, you know, wrong miking techniques and stuff like that. And it's just really cost me a bunch of time trying to figure out. You know how things work, and plus, you know, from the analog days of, of you know running to a mixing board and ADAT, so I used to like EQ things going into the recorder. You know, with analog, you know, boosting and cutting, you know, can yield some positive benefit to the tone. But in in the digital realm, I feel like a bunch of boosting, you know, EQ and stuff, you know, actually just makes things harsh. And uh, I had to learn to cut more so in the digital realm as opposed to the old school boost in the analog realm. So. Yeah, I'm with you there. It's it's weird how I, I really feel like they're different. You know, beasts, even the ones, even the emulators, uh, they feel different and, and act different with the actual signal than the digital. I think it says a lot, though, that you've taken the effort and time to learn how to adapt to the new system. Because, man, a lot of guys who started analog, they don't adapt to the digital realm. And it's possible to get great results in the digital realm. You just have to treat it like a different beasts like you said but hey that's why you're recording cool stuff and still a relevant guy out there because you've adapted to the modern age so here is something that i'm wondering back on the one session for everything i know a few guys who like to do a single session i've gone back and forth and i'm a pro tools guy so this is why i'm wondering the times where i like to mix in a single session it tend to be when it's a more homogenous sound on the record like if i'm doing a death metal band and there's not much variation between the songs like they don't all have a completely unique arrangement then it makes a lot of sense to me because you can keep it super consistent and once you get a song mixed well you're good to go but um when you start to get records where every song has drastically different arrangements i find that it's a lot harder to work in one session but i know that 
a lot of the bands you work with do have drastically different arrangements in every song. So do you have any other suggestions for keeping the Pro Tools session from getting too crazy besides just print the synths in another session and just bring in the waves? Like, do you have any other workarounds or is it just trying to get things as consistent as possible, like cleans on a clean track? Yeah, I think that's, you know, uh, every once in a while, if it's, you know, if there's something with just total different uh, instrumentation and things of that nature, I'll, I'll make another session uh, and then work out of there and then bounce and import and things of that nature, particularly with interludes, intros, outros, that type of thing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, usually it's just, you know, things, if one song has a tambourine, I don't create a tambourine track, I just make a percussion track, stuff that's, uh, you, know, okay. you know, processed commonly, like you might, you know, might bust it and run, you know, a common a bus compressor, you know, verb or, you know, environment simulation or something of that nature. Like, you know, I might route those, like a, my keyboard tracks, I usually label just key one, key two. I don't go through and label like string, but what it is, you know, like uh, uh, I might label the actual waveform what it is, but I don't actually create whole new tracks. I think that just keeps everything to a minimum as far as the CPU usage and things of that nature. I'm really simple. I mean, I don't do a lot of processing. Usually I try to keep the sound as pretty stripped down in terms of like how much, you know, how many plugins even I'm using, you know, I'm just not a big fan of a, you know, running 10, thing, 10 things on a snare drum or whatever to get the snare, you know, I usually want it to sound like a snare drum, just maybe EQ'd and uh, compressed a little bit for consistency, you know, so uh, that, that in and of itself, that, I guess that fundamental choice to keep the processing to a minimum, I think, uh, is also enables me to use less CPU, you know, so I guess it just depends on, uh, you know how much you're you're doing in terms of like in the specific plugins we all know like guitar harmonic distortion based plugins or whatever for some reason just use insane amounts of cpu you know so yeah. maybe <laughs> uh, bouncing those things out you know can help you know like sometimes you know like using a sans amp on bass or you know amp farm or something like that you know uh, bounce out that stuff so you don't have to actually run it in the session you know but aside from cpu what do you think about bouncing it out just for the sake of commitment because i've learned that by bouncing the sound down and pretty much getting rid of the source, it's enabled me to get things done, whereas before I would have analysis paralysis and have way too many options and just never decide. Oh, yeah. Like I said, I have OCD to a degree or whatever, and I've had to, that's one thing I've had to learn to try to, like, let go more so over the years, you know, like I'm always thinking things could be better and better. And, uh, you know, and, and the truth of the matter is oftentimes it's true. It can be better. But like you said, you, you just you can't get things done. So I think I just uh, as opposed to bouncing stuff out or committing, you know, for that reason or whatever, I just in my brain, I just like, OK, it's it's good. We'll come back to it. I'll see if it's important later once we get everything done. And, you know, but I could definitely see that because like, I'm OCD and it's just it's tough to like let go and things of that nature and but you know i do try to tend to leave things as flexible as possible and not committed as possible like i always keep the direct signals for guitars for reamping there's always the option for resampling drums or changing eqs anything you know always keep any midi information so in case we need to change the midi sound and uh just because i know how clients are you know and i'm really big on you know <laughs> i'll tell you I, when i talk about this commitment thing it's true like it's what i do but at the same time i i just do a save as so i'll do like right before i'm about to commit i'll do save as give it some kind of name where i'm like um you know piano source or a string section source and then save as again the next version of the song bounce it down get rid of all that stuff and then if i need to go back i can open up that save as session 
and make a change and stuff. But I try and avoid that like the plague. Me also, you know, it's just, you know, you know how clients are. I mean, they'll when they come into the record, they're like, hey, we want to sound like this. And then by the end of the record, they've changed their mind because a new record's come out that, that, <laughs> that, that, they, that they want to copy and emulate. And I'm like, dude, that, that sounds nothing like what we tune the drums for, you know, or, yeah. you know, <laughs> so, you know, there's there's an element that you have to kind of uh, deal with there. So, yep. you know, I, I'm with you. Like I said, I tried to uh, get a really good idea what the client wants to go for and try to commit to those sounds and try to get them to commit to the sound. And uh, to anybody listening out there, you know, just always save everything. I back up everything in triplicate, you know, because I've heard horror stories of people losing stuff or, you know, not being able to uh, change tones and things like that. I think you guys have, a you know, a level of uh, expertise with like guitar tones and stuff that I just don't have because a lot of times, you know, I'll get a tone I think is rocking by itself, you know, in the mix or whatever. And then I, you know, start mixing. I realize the tones just got too much gain or not enough. And, you know, I, I generally work with real amps and things of that nature. So, I often have to reamp and things like that. I'll tell you a yeah. secret: none of us actually knows what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> sure, it absolutely sounds like you're geniuses. We all think exactly like you do. I mean, I've never cut a guitar tone in my life where I've been like, "This is awesome." When I get into the mix, I'm always like, "Damn it, I screwed this up. And I need to fix it." <laughs> yeah, you're you're not there for the two weeks that I want to blow my brains out and <laughs> like reamp things for the twenty fifth time. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, we'll just pretend we never had that conversation. Everything we do is perfect. (laughs) That's the beautiful thing about all this is that you work so hard on a a three-minute song. No one hears the 30 days it took to get there. Oh, I know. Seems like a magic trick, you know? Whoa, this song's awesome. How'd you get, how'd you do all this? Well, it took me 30 days. (laughs) And I made everyone hate me in the process. My dog won't even talk to me. (laughs) It still sounds terrible to me, so. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I feel like... Every guy I know that mixes and produces goes through that mental game. And at some point, they either like what they've got or they have to move on because someone's going to kill them. You know, I've come to the realization, you know, that, you know, it's got to be to a certain point or whatever. But, you know, there's there's some of the best records on, you know, the the best selling records, most successful, some timeless classic records. I mean, there's flaws on them. There's no, you know, they're not perfect from the engineering standpoint. Things like not saying that that gives you an excuse to not try to your best to get a killer record or whatever. But, you know, holding up a record for a year just because of some tones or takes or something like that is kind of ridiculous when you really look at it in reality. You know, it's just a, a lot of time, things that we hear is not something that the average listener is even going to ever hear or care about. So you know, try to learn to be reasonable about and, and try to get the clients to be reasonable. Some clients don't care enough about what it sounds like. And some clients, you know, they, they yeah, they just get yeah. too nitpicky about stuff. I'm like, dude, that doesn't matter, uh, you know, to anyone. And it shouldn't even matter to you. I don't even know why it matters to you yeah if the snare drum has 0.5 db of a boost at 8k more you know your mom when she listens to the song isn't gonna like it any more or less either it's a good song or it's not exactly yeah i mean it's just it's it's a tough thing there's a lot of psychology goes in with dealing with clients and and it's just dealing with yourself i think you know as an engineer or as a mix guy or you know producer or whatever is just trying to uh you know balance that what it makes sense to really focus on the content you know the material at the end of the day is the 
song good? Is the take solid? Is the tone solid? You know, is it perfect? In my answer, in my situation, it's usually never, you know, it's almost never perfect. You know, we get lucky every once in a while and get a killer tone on something or, you know, a killer take here and there or whatever that's just like perfect for the part or whatever. But most of the time, it's just like, I feel always feel like it could be better. But if I don't know, I have a tough time taking the whole uh, Lang approach. Most of my clients don't have that budget to even come close to that anyway. Mutt Lang takes it to a ridiculous level. Yeah, I mean, but that might be what translates into the money. I don't know, but... (laughs) I think a good lesson for anybody is go dig up, and this exists on the internet with a little bit of Google searching, but um, you can find stems and things like that from old records. I'll give you an example. I remember one time I was at a bar and I was drunk and I was by one speaker and there was like one of the Appetite for Destruction songs on from Guns N' Roses. I don't remember which one, but it was one of their biggest songs. The um, I was sitting there and I was like, man, the guitar playing on this side sucks. Like, I can't believe there's all these mistakes. And I'm sitting there analyzing it. And I mean, I'm totally wasted, but I, I just couldn't believe how bad the guitar playing was. And I never noticed it. And I'm a guitar player. You know, I've listened to those songs a thousand times and I love them and I've never even paid attention to it. So if you want to blow your mind, just dig into some old stems and listen to how amazingly interesting <laughs> some of the performances are on the, some of the best songs that have ever been written oh yeah sweet child of mine adler goes to the uh to the ride on the first hit by accident as drummer as a drummer i noticed that or blake actually pointed it out to me from between the bear to me it's supposed to be on a hi-hat and he hits the crash and goes to the ride once and switches back over i'm sure you guys have heard of <laughs> drummers do <Yeah>. that <laughs> and it's in the song it's like what like how who missed that like that's insanity you know but at the end of the day does it matter no you know it drives me insane you know my ocd i'm like just like I would have been like, dude, you got to retract that. But apparently they used to even care or notice they were probably all high. So. <laughs> well, I'm sure that there was Alcohol. some of that involved. <laughs> so I, I guess that makes me wonder what level of edits do you impose on the drums and how much of it do you try to get through the natural performance? And I guess, how do you deal with drummers that aren't up to snuff. Yeah, it's, it completely depended on the drummer and the production style that the band wants, you know, like usually when I, you know, I'm working with a band, I tell people I usually don't like to try to copy any styles or any particular record or whatever, but let me hear some records that you kind of dig the drum sounds on or the overall production and, uh, you know, that'll dictate which way we go about things. If somebody brings in a more produced product that's sample blended or sample replaced or whatever, then I know automatically, hey, I'm, you know, a lot of the more modern produced stuff, it's definitely quantized or the drums are straight up programmed we're definitely going to quantize so i don't even while we're tracking i'm not even concerned about you know subdivisions and you know how tight it is to the click or any of that stuff i'm mainly just listening to the symbols and making sure they're clean and dynamic but you know if, if a band comes in and they're like hey we want to be like natural if they bring in somebody like you know a mastodon record or whatever or you know a kurt record you know that is obviously real just natural primarily natural drums then then it's going to be more important during tracking for me to make sure they're, you know, close to the click and uh, dynamics are solid and sound and stuff like that. We're going to spend more time tracking. So, you know, further than that, it just depends on the drummer. Some drummers come in, they're like, hey, we want to sound like a, a Mastodon or something like that. But they just they're not subdivision solid enough or dynamic enough then basically I'll have to take the route of doing more quantizing and uh, sample blending, but I'll try to keep that more natural. I just, you know, use the actual kit, the samples from the actual kit and things of that nature and, and try to just really uh, you know, make it sound as organic as possible and 
so it just is really across the board. It just depends on what the client wants, honestly. You know, like with Blake from Between the Bear and Me, he's a, he's a monster. You know, we use his real performance takes because he plays dynamically. His subdivisions are solid. You know, quantizing is really, you know, it's it's there or whatever, you know, for, you know, syncing reasons and things like that with, key, you know, keys and, you know, program material. But it's, uh you know, it's more loose than I would do, say, on with some more modern, slick, you know, metal type production I attempt or whatever, you know, where I would just go hard on the quantizing. Yeah, with drummers like Blake, I tend to, well, I've never recorded Blake, but, you know, when recording badass drummers like that, I try to just get the performance out of them and then manually edit anything that needs it. Yeah. I try to avoid beat detective and those scenarios as much as possible. Maybe if there's a pattern kick part that needs to be perfect um, stylistically, then I'll do that because let's face it, nobody can actually play it to the level of perfection that some of those parts need to be at. So on those parts, I'll, I'll do it a little bit, but I still, yeah, I know what you mean. I, I, I'm pretty easy handed about it with a great drummer. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things. It's like, for me personally, like I like a record to sound like the band on their very best day, like an idealized version of what the band sounds like, meaning that everything's on time and in tune. Everybody happened to play on stage and just nail everything to the best of their human ability. You know, I feel and, like that's a good quote to frame on a wall and put up or something like that. I, I think that's a really golden nugget. Just, I love it. I think that's a great piece of advice. Yeah, but there's a lot of bands who, you know, they bring in, you know, references and they want to sound better than it's humanly possible. And I don't think that's, there's anything bad, you know, there's fear factory, you know, they sound like a factory. So they use triggers and, you know, every, everything is, you know, quantized or whatever, you know, and it's just like, there's bands out there who should sound mechanical or sugar. I mean, they're unbelievable, but you know, you can't have a loose sugar that wouldn't even, it, to me, you know, that style of music calls for a level of, uh, you know, precision yeah. to get the idea across that, uh, you know, it's probably difficult to achieve in a live recording type of situation. So, I mean, it just, you know, it just depends on what the client wants and needs to translate what they're doing properly. And it's, it's just a, you know, it's an opinion at the end of the day. But uh, in the Fear Factory or Meshuga context, that's an artistic choice. That's deliberate. Yeah. yeah. That's not because... They can't do it. They they obviously can do it. Yeah. That's my thing. You know, it's just like, you know, I've had drummers, just like you said, you know, that if the drummer can do it, sometimes I've had drummers drummers who are fantastic and they want to really produce and they're bringing me references of like, dude, that's quantized this program drums and things of that nature. I'm like, I try to talk to them like, dude, you're, you know, your drumming's awesome. I, you know, it's, it can sound great, natural. Let's try to capture you know, the, the real performance. Cause you know, to me, rock and metal has traditionally been a performance based art, you know, and uh, there's a certain energy and, you know, emotional connection or something that, that happens when you're actually capturing and using as much of the performance as possible, you know, but, you know, having said that there's some bands that, you know, sound best or some styles of music that sounds best with it more perfected, you know, uh, you know, periphery, you know, that stuff needs to be super perfect. And, uh, and it, that's what makes the most impact for that style. So it's just a production call that you know it's a decision that you make or whatever as you're going along based you know for me it's a decision I make based on what they want and what I think is best for their for their product and record you know um, so yeah. how do you deal with it when you know that they're not capable physically of doing what you want or what they want but they're hard-headed about 
how to get there, meaning they want something that's inhuman, but they want to keep it natural, but they're not good enough to keep it natural. What's How do you approach that without causing World War Three? Well, I mean, again, it comes back to, you know, the way I look at it, you know, whoever's paying for the record is the boss. If the label is paying for the record and they expect me to deliver a product, I feel like I have a little more leverage with the band. I usually try to side with the band. Once up to them, if they're like, hey, I want 30 second no kick drums here, I'm like, dude, you, I know you can't do that. I try to talk. I try to talk them out of it. I mean, I really do. I mean, like, you know, I don't like doing the whole Dragon Force guitar stuff where you slow the guitars down and speed them up. I'm like, dude, it's not going to sound anywhere close to that when you play it live. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah. I hate that so much. You know, punching in is one thing, but it's just like there's awesome things that you can do with a computer. You know, to make something sound cool or whatever. And it's always been done. I mean, it even you know, it's done with Cowboys from Hell from Pantera, where they actually recorded a quarter a quarter step down and tuned it back up to standard, close to standard production reasons, the sharpens transients and things like that. So there's reasons to do stuff or whatever, but I don't want to, you know, I don't mind using the technology to save time and, uh, you know, to idealize things to a bit like tuning vocals and things of that nature. But I don't want to tune it, tune a person's vocals to a note that they can't possibly ever hit or, uh, you know, speed up the guitars or kick drums that, to levels that I just know that this player cannot do. And I, I literally I generally try to talk them out of it. You know, and, and use reason like, dude, you're going to have to do this on a night to night basis if you become successful, possibly. I really recommend against that. But at the end of the day, if they're paying, I mean, I have to do what they say. If the label's paying, then I, you know, I'm going to be like, dude, no. <laughs> <laughs> how do you, I'm curious, how do you guys, like Joey, how do you deal with artistic disputes between the label and the band? It's oh, a tough one, man. Um, I usually just try and if I'm like sided with the label, then it's pretty easy, you know? Um, but if I'm sided with the band, I, I will just ignore the label and just, you know, it's not like they're going to fly over here and, and force me to, to make the song the way they want it you know? <laughs> at the end of the day. I think that requires a certain amount of clout too to be able to get away with. <laughs> exactly. Like I couldn't have done that on day one. No way. But um, if I don't bounce the song out the way that they want me to bounce it out, then who else is going to do it? You know? <laughs> The other thing is I, I always have a contract that protects me in that way. There's something called a master. And what that really is, is it's referring to the song. I have creative freedom over my masters. So if the label really, really wanted to push something super far to the point where we're just not going to use this, we want to... We want to have this section of the song longer, and I'm like refusing to do it. They still got to pay me for that song, and then they also have to pay someone else to go remake the song from scratch, which we all know is not really going to happen because, let's face it, who wants to go do a whole nother recording session just to make a section of a song longer? So a lot of times I'll, I'll win if I really, really feel like it's worth fighting for. However, I do pick and choose my battles, and I know there's sometimes where it's just pointless to even, you know, argue over something like that. But between the label and the the band is definitely a tough one, and I try to just be on the, the band side because, you know, bands hop around from producer to producer and bands hop around from label to label. You're not really doing a lot by having some kind of alliance with the label. It's more it's better to be friends with the bands, I think. To me it's the band's art. Exactly. If the label yeah. has legitimate claim to, you know, about something, you know, be honest, like I've never had a label that cares that much, you know, like of course I, I deal with smaller labels than you guys do, generally speaking or whatever, but uh, most of the labels are like 
cool 10 tracks enough minutes of audio sounds good you know <laughs> i think the bigger the label the the less it just depends you know it's a different style different styles of music like yeah. I, I working with rise i'll say rise is amazing when it comes to creative freedom because they just they sign bands on the basis of like okay this is what this band is we're not going to change it we're not going to say anything about what they do creatively and that's kind of how it goes down i mean you you make the record, it sounds dope, and then you turn it in, and they're like, thank you, and that's it. But then there's other labels that like to micromanage everything. And Oh, God, I hate that. <laughs> yeah. The rock, the radio stuff, especially in rock and pop, is like that. They're very much popular this week on radio. Oh, we need to do that. So whatever you guys have been working on the last few months isn't good enough. Write 10 more songs. <laughs> so. yeah. I've dealt with both extremes in big labels and small labels. I think it comes down to the individual personality of the A&R guy and whoever he works with directly over at the label. I will say this. The most supportive label I've ever worked with, I think, one of them on like the large scale side was when I did um, the Fuel by Ramen Atlantic uh, Vinyl theater and their A&R guy Steve Robertson was awesome because yeah he weighed in he had an opinion and they had some like specific arrangement requests but they let us do pretty much whatever we wanted to do and it was awesome because the band was very adamant about this is our sound that we've created over years and this is our team and we want that we don't want to go to anyone else this is the kind of record we want to make and they were really really supportive of it and I mean he even let me master the record I, he was like I'm right uh, do you want me to send it to Ted Jensen I'm like yeah that would be cool I'm like I already mastered it but I kind of like to hear what Ted is gonna do with it and he was like oh I think it sounds great I'm like all right well then keep it <laughs> so I was pretty amazed because it was like my first major record like that it is awesome when you have a really supportive A&R guy that you can actually talk to and have a good conversation where it's not like you feel like you're on the defensive as a producer and you have to justify everything you're doing because you know this track came out by this band on radio four days ago and the record that you're working on now sounds different now they think it's dated or you know what I mean it's just I've had some ridiculous situations like that before. Oh, absolutely. So, Jamie, we've got some questions from the audience. I'll just get started with them. So, Austin Schaefer's asking, for a band like Between the Buried and Me, do you track them to a click, and do you have much creative input on their songs? Yes, I do track them to a click. Uh, usually, uh, Between the Buried and Me, and, and they, they're one of the more idealistic bands you could ever work with, because they actually track the whole album before they come into the studio themselves so blake usually has all his tempos and stuff worked out and click tracks and he just comes in and we just track to what he already has uh, so basically he's re-recording the drums to get the best possible take but yeah as far as creative input uh honestly don't have a lot you know like there might be like a tempo adjustment that i might suggest or uh you know harmonies usually my input with the bt bam is trying you know is just direct them with tones and uh you know that work for layering and harmonies or uh textures and things like that they're really since i guess the colors record they've been really into uh doing a lot of layers and things of that nature and so that's that's usually where my input comes in but as far as the bones of the songs as far as the drum parts the bass parts the guitar parts i don't really have a lot of input i used to help tommy a lot with the vocal harmonies but he's really come into his own as a vocalist and he's pretty much writing all his vocals and harmonies at this point I think one of the best things you can do as a producer is understand when it's better to just get out of the way. There's some bands I really try to help, you know, 
give structure ideas and things like that. But you know, with with what the Between the Barrier and Me does, it's you know, it's extreme you know, progressive type material. There's no rules, you know what I'm saying? There's no like, hey, you got to hit with the hook within the first 30 seconds and all that, you know, like you do with like, <laughs> like a, you know, a commercial single. You know, I honestly don't work with a lot of those type of clients. So uh, unless what, what they're doing just sounds bad or not good, then I, you know, I'm really big on like, let me hear what you're doing, you know, as we go. You know, a lot of times there's, most of the clients I work with, they don't do any pre-production sessions or anything like that, like they did back in the day. Most clients, honestly, don't even send demos, even though I request them. So a lot of times I'm hearing a song for the first time while they're tracking it, so I just let them record it and put it down how they have it, and then we'll go back and make modifications and tweaks at the end or whatever if you know if I feel like there's there's something that can be improved. And you know, luckily, as I've gotten on in the years and I've been doing this for a while, you know, more people are more open to my ideas. And uh, early on, I would just try to, recommend stuff and they'll be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it takes a while before I think someone's built up their name enough to where people just inherently trust them. Yeah. I think, for, you know, those beginners out there, it's like, so don't get discouraged if, like, you know you're right about something. Sometimes the band has to fail on their own and learn from that mistake. So yeah. if you show people the result, sometimes they will resent you. But if you help them figure it out they'll respect you for it. So you got to be careful with psychology, but sometimes they just have to fail. It just, yeah. it is what it is. There's a lot of psychology goes in this. It really is. I mean, as far as, you know, getting along with the band or the artists and having the, helping the band get along with each other and helping the band get along with the label, you know, going back to what we were saying with the labels, like I always encourage the band to like, keep the label happy, especially early in their relationship because the label can do a lot for them if they decide to, Oftentimes, and the bands just usually are just, I hate the label. They're not giving us any royalties, which is true. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's just like, you know, dude, you, you still want them on your side. You want them to make that phone call or, you know, sign that check, you know, for the tour support or whatever. So it's just like, you know, at least entertain what they're saying. Anything that you can stomach of their ideas, you know, <laughs> you know, try to entertain it. Because that's ultimately a big cog in the business you know uh, as, far, as far as making a living playing music and and it, the more successful the band is the better for us as you know engineers of course you know and, and, you know that's what drives our art business and uh so i try to help the bands you know material wise or whatever try to make recommendations that, that might help them be more successful um as far as tone wise it might make them more successful uh, as far as interactions with each other and the and the labels that might make them more successful you know um, i try to make recommendations where i think i have some uh, insight yeah th i think that's really really important so aj vienna is asking when tracking drums how do you handle the miking and recording process and also with bands like pt bam and scale the summit and wretched did you try to track them dry and then sample rooms or do you throw up room mics i usually throw up room mics i mean i'm usually uh, a lot of the projects i do i do out of my basement here and it's a small room and uh, so there's not a lot of room natural room ambience so almost always supplement with some sort of convolution reverb to emulate a large space but with the last between the barrier and me we recorded a nice studio and uh, uh so we actually had a nice room to actually mic up and uh, capture the sound uh, but uh, yeah, I always record the room mic. So yeah, I'll mic each individual drum, you know, the kick, I'll use a mic, two or three mics and the snare, two or three mics and each tom and uh, the cymbals that usually uh, either, you know, depending on their cymbal setup, I usually try to at least capture stereo pair of cymbals, uh, the hat and the ride and, 
you know, stereo room and a mono far room usually. Just to go a little deeper into what you said, what what are some of your favorite snare mics and miking techniques? Like, because you said you use three or four, and I also use three or four, but I also know some guys that just like bottom and top. So I'm curious, what what are some of your go tos on snare? Yeah, that's a kind of a recent thing. I mean, usually it's just top and bottom for sure. And it, but you know, every once in a while I'll add a side mic. I, I've seen that and actually laughed you know when i saw that i'm like why is he mic in the side but i uh i was like i'm gonna just experiment with that and, it, and it's and it's particularly useful in terms of uh you know when you have to really hard gate the snare or uh you know and i you know i usually have a challenge of getting the symbols out of the snare you know if we're trying to use a real snare sound and just to add a little bit of body back to the snare drum without a bunch of symbols in it you know it's uh it's it's a kind of a strangely useful uh thing you know i've actually done that same thing yeah um and i've also found that saturating the side mic sometimes can be really really cool yeah compressing it hard and doing weird stuff that you can't really do with the top mic because of the hat bleed and things i've got these little uh i can't remember what they're called but there's just covers to, to help reduce cymbal bleed but if you put it on the side mic or whatever it really you know you get a pretty clean snare body sound or whatever is kind of an interesting thing and every once in a while i'll kind of put a, a you know condenser in the room kind of more aimed just to capture the snare you know we were actually talking about that yesterday on, on the podcast uh one thing i like to do is not a condenser but hang an sm7b right over the snare pointed right down but like above the overheads it just it's a really cool trick yeah i'd like to try that yeah I, I, like i've seen i've seen people do crazy things and it's just it's oftentimes it's just uh you know i start with the basics and see what we have if i'm satisfied that you know it just depends on the snare drum the player and obviously like i said if you're going the more sample blend or sample you know replace route then doing a bunch of that stuff is unnecessary you know like i want to see if the player's good first you know if it's, he's just like he's just playing raw you know with dynamics and stuff like that i'm just like I'm going to have to do sample blend or replacement anyway. So it's like, I'm not going to put a bunch of mics and things of that nature. <laughs> I've definitely got my, my limits with that too, because I like to go crazy with miking and yeah. spend a long time on tuning and getting shit just perfect. But there's times where you do all that work and you know that it's tuned right. Cause I work with a great drum tech, like, because I don't trust the drummers to tune well. And I, I know when stuff is right and then you get the drummer on there and no matter what you do, it just doesn't <laughs> sound that great. And so I've kind of learned to understand those situations yeah. that I'm not going to like settle for something bad, but I, I know that the majority of the sound is going to come from the samples. And so I won't take like the, all the time in the world. I mean, I'm not going to have out of tune drums or yeah. anything dumb happening. So what about Tom's? You said you like to throw on more than one mic. <clears throat> well, generally Tom's, I don't, yeah, I don't do the whole top and bottom thing. Normally I'll just use one on top or whatever Tom's. Or whatever. Oh, okay. Yeah. Lots of guys don't seem to like bottom Tom's mics. <laughs> I've, I've done a few mixes where people have done them and I just, I haven't found them really, I guess, not necessarily that they're not useful, but they're just not necessary, you know, for uh, the Tom sound that I usually go for, I guess, you know. So I guess that's just it. I mean, I just haven't found a way that uh, or need to use it, you know. To, you know, to me, like, a snare is a really important part of the sound. A lot of times the Toms are just kind of, you know, I've had bands, I, I'd spend t 
hours miking at their toms and they hardly use them on the whole record. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had people come in with these monster kits and like double bass and not even touch the other kit. And it's just like, okay. You know, I always make a point of addressing <laughs> the structure of the kit before we get going, unless it's like, a dude from a super old school band who's been playing the same enormous setup for 30 years. And there is no way that he's going to reduce it to three toms. No way. It's not happening no matter what you say. So don't even bring it up. But (laughs) so uh, uh, something that Giovanni Angel is asking is what was the toughest situation ever for you in a tracking session? I think mainly just that, you know, there's a few clients that I've ever, you know, worked with before that are just like, just assholes, honestly, you know, just, uh, just totally uncool people, you know, and I hate that. I would rather work with a cool dude. That's not good, not a good player than work with an excellent player. That's just a total asshole, whatever, you know, you know, that's just, it's, it's tough for me. You know, it's, um, you know, I've, I've developed an anxiety disorder cause I'm a, I'm a people pleaser. I, I want to try to make everybody happy, you know, by nature. And I know that's difficult and in a lot of cases impossible, but with some people, they, it's just really impossible. You know, it's just, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they have, <laughs> they just, the, the people would try, you know, like they come in, they're like, uh, yeah, I'm not really feeling that. And blah, blah. I'm like, dude, we're not even, it's not mixed. It's not, you know, you don't, it's like, you, you've told me yourself, you've never recorded before with in a real studio. And then you're trying to tell me how to do my job and armchair mixers. <laughs> oh God, I hate them. <laughs> so I'm not going to point out any specific people or projects or whatever, but I've had that happen. And it's just, uh, it's horrible. I mean, it really, it, 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 it causes damage to my soul for some reason. I wish I didn't let it do that, but it just, uh, you know, it just really hurts when somebody is just, just an unbridled asshole for no reason. You know? <laughs> yeah, I uh, concur. On that <laughs> um, so here's another thing that Giovanni Angel is asking is in the bands that you've worked with, uh, do you see more digital amps or tube amps? And especially these days, what are you seeing more of? Oh yeah, of course. These days are like, oh sweet, you got an X effects. Let's use that. And you know, that's a a big thing with the younger generation. But uh, you know, I've also got a stack of heads, and and the older generation, you know, older guys come in. They always, you know, they they will not plug into the X effects. So it's, it's <laughs> I hear that. Yeah, it's split. It's split between the 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 two camps. You know, um, so yeah. But I've definitely seen a lot. You know, like to me, like you can get great sounds with the pod. You know, you've got you know Joey's tone forge now and you've got you know there's a lot of plugins that can sound fantastic you know and uh, obviously the, the the kemper units and axe effects can sound great um you know if you tweak them and uh you know but i also love the sound of real amps you know like uh, if you've got a really amp with some good tubes in it and uh, a great sounding cabinet and things like that it's, there's some magic that happens there so and it depends on the project you know you, i think with the plugins and with the amp emulators and profilers and things for some reason you get a little more definition easier i guess with those amps uh yeah it's, it's tougher to get that kind of definition and uh you know articulation and percussive quality out of a real amp that you get with those things and and, and sometimes you need that percussive sound or whatever or that definition for the style of music that the band is you know it's a threat you know really modern uh articulate alternate Riff type stuff. I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about. I'm sure listeners yeah, probably. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's the air. You yeah, know? it's just yeah. But there's you know, like I said, you get you know more of a rock band or whatever. Something just seems more large to me with the real amp deal. I don't know. Maybe it's just a I'm old school or whatever. But uh, no, I think there's definitely a place for both. I think you can get great or terrible results out of 
either. Yeah, takes a lot more skill to mic an amp though than it does to dial in a patch preset, in my opinion. So it's easier to mess up. There's like a bigger learning curve, I guess, is my my point. With there's more the, variables too. Just moving the mic up, you know, a fraction of an inch or whatever on the speaker cab you can, it means everything. You know, it's just a. Uh, Crazy stuff like that. But, I mean, I think it takes a lot of skill to get a real amp or a plug-in to sound great, too, because that's real. Oh, yeah. Because you, you have to have the ear, you know, and it's uh, you have to know what frequencies are there that are weird and things of that nature. And uh, I don't know. There's there's challenges to both realms, you know, and there's a skill to be developed both ways. And I think, uh, you know, I try to just do both, whatever the clients feel comfortable with, whatever the production style kind of calls for that kind of thing or whatever. So I don't think there's uh, any right or wrong there, you know. I think the most important thing to just understand going in is that you have to approach them differently. Just like we were talking earlier about EQing in the box or out of the box, it's different. It'll do different things absolutely because it's just different. And, you know, amps versus sims, you can get great results out of both, but you shouldn't approach them the same way because even though you're using an IR and a microphone emulation, it's not going to behave the way that a cabinet and a microphone behave. It's just not. It's it's a whole different thing. So just approach it differently. Approach it like you're learning a brand new skill set. So Greg Hink is asking, I'd love to hear about some of the vocal processing and clean guitar tones on the latest Contortionist album. Hmm, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> talented band, because I've worked with them too. Yeah. Like, oh, very yeah. Very talented. Yeah, it's got a lot to do with them just being awesome, you know, like as far as players and things like that. But strangely enough, I think we used the Mesa Boogie Mark V for all their tones. I think even the clean we just kind of switched the channel like, hey, sounds great. You know, and uh, they got some Ibanez's or whatever from Ibanez that had like uh, coil taps or whatever. I think all the clean tones or most of them had, we used a split coil, just passive pickups, you know, DiMarzio or whatever came in their Ibanez's. And uh, we actually just ran them through a, an old school Boss ME50 multi-effects pedal. <laughs> Those are good. <laughs> I Dude, I, like I said, I mean, I used to have all the separate Boss pedals and uh, all these pedals. And then a kid came in with one and I said, I'm like, I sit down in a beat. I'm like, this sound exactly like the pedals. Like, why do I have like a whole, you know, shelf of pedals when I could just get this? So I just sold the pedals and got that. Most people who want pedals usually have some cool stuff when they come in the studio that they want to use, but they didn't because I think they have axe effects as they use live or something like that, or they did at the time. And uh, they were wanted, just wanted to kind of try to use a real amp. And they, they just say, hey, that Mesa looks cool. And I think we plugged in the Mason, the JVM, the Marshall, and uh, I've got an old PV Ultra. And, uh, you know, we just tried some different combinations and they just ended up liking the boogie. They just wanted to kind of, a, I guess, a, a more organic sound or whatever for the new, for the new reg, more rock or something, less, less metally. And that uh, the boogie just kind of has that big, fatter sound, I guess, that they were kind of wanting to go for on the record. So that's all we did for cleans, honestly, is just mess around with that pedal with some occasional chorus and reverb and, you know, the Mark V into a Mesa cab standard with vintage 30s with a SM57 on the, in the middle <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> and then vocals, we use my Neumann U87 into a, my Vintec or whatever, which is like a Neve clone. I love an 87 into a Neve. That's a great combination. One of my absolute favorites. Hey, that's the exact same chain I used on that guy as well. Yeah, I mean, he's just it just seemed to work with his, you know, I tried a couple... I got an SM7 and I got a couple other mics that I try on people and uh, that would just seem like the good combination for Mike's voice or whatever. So we just went with that. 
as far as effects and stuff, we did, I mean, all kinds of stuff. I mean, it was just basic compression overall. Mike's just a fantastic vocalist, so tuning his vocals was uh, minimal. You know? Yeah, I, I think that people need to understand something, really. Like, until you've worked with a great vocalist, you may not get it, but he sounds great without any of the fancy stuff. Yeah. You can get him sounding almost album-ready straight in. Uh, that's when I got his voice coming through. It was like, okay, this is phenomenal. So from that point on, it was just, how do we want to dress this up? And I'm sure it was a similar thing for you. A lot of guys haven't had the opportunity to work with someone that good, so they're thinking more in terms of what are you? what do you do to get that magical sound but it's him yeah like, he's great and unfortunately that's rare in this style of music in particular you know to have somebody who can sing and pitch and uh who has a you know great tone and great feel naturally you know and uh but yeah so i mean literally just put some different verbs on him here and there and some echo and you know delay and uh we had some cool fun vocoder moments where we'd actually build like vocoder sounds with him actually singing in the seconds and things of that nature and uh you know we mess with some little toy megaphones and just uh, fun stuff like that, you know, uh, just little tone modifier type stuff or whatever. I think I have a couple vocal pedals, like a TC Electronics thing that does some vocoder robot sounds and just, so we messed around with a lot of ideas like that. So Sounds about right to me. Um, something that Dimitri Jablonski is asking, please share some techniques you would use to track and mix bass to achieve the huge bass sound, but still make it really stand out in the mix. Uh, I'm probably not the best guy to ask us. I mean, you guys would probably get better, bigger bass sounds than I do. But uh, generally, uh, what I do, I'm still a big fan of the actual bass amp sound or whatever. I just feel like it kind of blends in the mix a little more organically. Like you get with direct bass or whatever, you get you get the extended low end that just doesn't happen with real amp in the mix. I don't know. It's kind of a preference thing there or whatever. But normally, I'll just mic up the Ampeg or whatever the bass player uses. I usually mic a Beta 52 off axis on one of the speakers and then blend it with a Sennheiser 421 on axis and uh, usually blend those pretty evenly on the cab itself. And then in the mix, oftentimes, if, if somebody wants, uh, you know, I often times do like parallel processing where you know i mean this is a pretty common thing where somebody will you know maybe cut the, uh, almost like a, a crossover type situation where you'll cut the lows on one track and run some drive or distortion on uh, one of the tracks and then the other track you preserve more of a full frequency sound or just the lows only you know you can compress and mix those differently separately very similar technique you know what other people do and if you wanted to extend a low end, like I said, you could always add in the direct signal. Like uh, any guitars or bass I record, I always record direct signals, as most people do. I don't understand why people don't sometimes. It's like, it's no like extra effort. Just, I mean, other than setting up another channel, like do it. Yeah, it, it drives me insane when I get something to mix and there's no DIs, you know, just for potential quantizing needs, you know, just even if you just use it to see the rhythms, to make sure everything's kind of, you know, tight or whatever every once in a while you need something you need to tighten up and if all you have is the distorted track or whatever you know you can't do it it's just like you're guessing you know it's just yeah absolutely everybody just track direct guitar please <laughs> we will find you and hunt you down <laughs> yeah there's a law i wish there was uh, well the, the thing that bums me out is when you get something to mix and a guy is like i want my and i'm not talking about like Eddie Van Halen hitting us up or something. Talking about like some guy who's just real personal about some angle amp he's had for 17 years or something. And the tone that they send you 
kind of sucks and there's no DIs and he just kind of worked you into a corner where even if the tone he sent you was good, it would still be helpful to have the DIs because at least you could edit it or yeah. fix it or blend it with something. Who knows? Like yeah, absolutely, a bunch of reasons to have a DI, even if you're going to use the tone that's given to you. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, there's been countless times where I got a tone, I think it's sounding awesome, even in initial tracking, but then you start layering up stuff and you're like, you realize it's just too thick or too much distortion or, or even not enough, it's too weak or whatever, you know, and you have to go back and reamp it. And you know, it's just, it's just a safety net thing for me, you know, and, and uh, it's useful for quantizing purposes if needed. And uh, just then it, like you just said, there's no reason to not do it. <laughs> not that difficult. Just use a track. <laughs> totally. Dude, I, that's all our questions from the crowd. And that's what we got, man. Uh, I want to really thank you for coming on. It's been great talking to you and we love your work. Yeah, Jamie, you've been awesome. Thank you. Man, you guys are, like I said, you're, you're the uh, the masters. So, like, I, I watch your classes and things on Creative Live myself, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to steal all your uh, sounds and techniques. Well, oh, and let me just say that people uh, listening, um, you should also check out Jamie's Creative Live. You did it with Be- Between the Buried and Me, and it was all about how you guys work together and the most recent record, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, well, it was actually Tommy from Between the Bear and Me his, in his solo record. Oh, okay. Um, Sorry, my. But yeah, so it's just, uh, it's like we just went over some of the things we did for that record. And uh, yeah, we covered some pretty interesting stuff in there. Might be some useful information. Yeah, I thought it was a really cool creative live for sure. So, well, you go check that out, audience, if you're listening. Yeah, definitely go check that one out. So, all right, man. Well, thank you very much. And thank you guys so much. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you guys later. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Mick DSP, professional audio plugins. For over 15 years, Mick DSP has continued producing industry acclaimed and award winning software titles. Visit mcdsp.com for more information. The podcast is also brought to you by Slate Digital. All the pro plugins, one low monthly price. Visit slatedigital.com for more information. Thank you for listening to the Unstoppable Recording machine podcast to ask us questions make suggestions and interact visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today